Welcome to Voices of Care. Coming up in this episode is my conversation with Dr. Rowena Christmas, Chair at the Royal College of General Practitioners in Wales, where we'll be discussing the transformation of the primary care sector in Wales and the role of GPs within the government's vision for a healthier Wales. 25% of GPs don't see themselves still working in, in primary care in five years' time. That's a quarter of us. It feels really tragic that Julian Tudor Hart's practice is still the most deprived practice in Wales after all the good work he did. Um, but, but the engagement, the, the passion of the doctors working in these most challenging areas is really uplifting. Leadership is going to be increasingly important for GPs as we, as we move into the multidisciplinary teams. What we need to do is, is look at the workforce that's available to us in Wales. So it's a very, de you know, very deprived nation in, in areas. And we're sort of seeing that, that the health service could be the new industry, but we need to empower people to recognise that. You know, lots of people don't know how many different roles there are in primary care. It's not just doctors and nurses. Hello, I'm Sahel Mirza and welcome to this episode in Season 2 of Voices of Care. Today I'm joined by Dr Rowena Christmas, the Chair of the Royal College of General Practitioners in Wales. Voices of Care seeks to get to the heart of the issues facing the health and social care sector across the UK by speaking to leaders about how we can enable the healthcare workforce of the future. In this episode we'll be discussing the transformation of primary care across Wales and the role of general practice and the challenges it faces. Uh, no one better to talk about it than uh, yourself, Rowena. Thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. My privilege. Before we get into some of the detailed questions, I wanted to take the opportunity to find out a bit more about the work of the Royal College uh, across Wales. It's about clinical standards, patient care, of course, and I think 2,000 plus GPs that you represent. Yeah, that, that's about right. Um, obviously, quality patient care is our priority. Um, and to achieve that, with the pressures we're, we're facing at the moment, it has to be workforce, workload are our, our sort of big issues. Um, we're very interested in training GPs, um, training people to become GPs, maintaining standards once you become a GP. Um, and, and, and with the pressures again, we're, we're, we're very focused on maintaining morale, GP well-being, looking after the workforce so that we can look after our patients very well. My own priority as chair is safeguarding. The whole reason I sort of stepped up to leadership is, is, is my passion for that. And, and that's about health inequalities. It's about preventative work. So that's really important. Um, and GP leadership, we've restarted our, our leadership programme in Wales after the pandemic. So, so that's setting up again so, next month. So you've got plenty on your plate there. <laughs> we're going to cover, going on. We're going to cover a, a number <laughs> of those things throughout the uh, discussion today. Uh, but just one slight tangential point that you mentioned in inequalities. It's now over 50 years since the pioneering work of the Welsh GP, uh, Dr Julian Tudor. And the Deep End project, um, that's designed to tackle health inequalities. Can you speak about that briefly? Because I think it's an important part of the work yeah. that the Royal College does. That's going really well. So so we asked the 100 most deprived practices in Wales to, to sort of get together. Um, and the idea is that we're, we're supporting them to have some protected time so that they can share ways that they're, they're sort of empowering their patient populations to sort of do the best they can. It feels really tragic that Julian Tudor Hart's practice is still the most deprived practice in Wales after all the good work he did. Um, but, but the engagement, the, the passion of the doctors working in these most challenging areas is really uplifting and, and the project's going really well. As you say, disheartening that it's still that challenge, but um, the baton's now been passed the, to the next generation. 
Let's look at primary care, um, the numbers of GPs, uh, numbers of workforce. Wales has benefited from a slew of legislation. Um, Healthier Wales, the Healthier Wales Workforce Plan, uh, the government's introduced its National Workforce Implementation Plan. Numbers of workforce across the whole piece has grown, particularly nursing. But it's still the challenge, as it is across the UK, we're facing shortages and also there is, of course, the time bomb, if we can call it that, of uh, demography and an ageing population, particularly in general practice. Very much so. Um, I mean, the bottom line is we desperately need more GPs. Um, but the latest data shows that between September 2021 and 2022, we lost 1.3% of the GP workforce. It's it's progressively going down. Um, a recent s- survey that the RCGP did showed that 25% of GPs don't see themselves still working in, in primary care in five years' time. That's a quarter of us. Um, and you could think, well, that, that must be retirement. But actually, the greatest numbers are saying that they're going to leave because of stress or because the workload's too high, or, which feels very difficult, they find the role unrewarding, when actually it could be, should be, the best job in the world. You know, you're seeing people from all walks of life, you're, you're hearing their stories, and you're, you're using your medical expertise to try and make their, their lives better. So we should be able to turn this around somehow. So we'll touch upon those because I think, as you say, 25% is a startling figure and not just because of the demography, these wider cultural uh, factors which are important. Just briefly, um, part of the solution, perhaps in the short term, do you see the role of international recruitment and international workforce to help primary care even if as a short-term gap? Well, I think this is probably the future. Over 50% of the GP trainees in Wales are international medical graduates, and we very much welcome them. We're delighted to have them join us, and we're we're sort of putting lots of things in place to try and make it easier for them, Um, because it is is more difficult in some ways for for them to to sort of settle into, into a different country. Ethically, it's a bit difficult, because obviously they're coming from countries that have their own doctor workforce shortages so that's something we have to be very mindful as well but um, yeah we're, we're, we're looking at extending the visa issue um, they now have four months longer to get get their visas after they've qualified which has been a, a terrible burden for newly qualified GPs and their families. Well we're going to certainly need them because I think Public Health Wales numbers show that the demography of the population in Wales is going to dramatically change uh, yeah. the number of 85 plus uh, is I think 127% increase over a two-decade period. And also um, people with uh, multiple morbidities or two or more long-standing health conditions, adults, that's a dramatic increase. I think the stats for me was that 90% of healthcare is delivered in primary care. Now, Health Education Improvement Wales have been consulting about a strategy for primary care. But before we even address that, I think what's startling from the numbers you've given is that even previously thriving practices... Are, are falling over potentially in Wales and people are handing back contracts. Yeah, and, and that's devastating. We, we've, we've lost 18 um, practices since COVID when, when we need to be increasing. And as you say, over 90% of patient contacts happen in primary care with less than 10% of the NHS budget, which, which is where our, our challenge comes from. I, I, I had a trip up to North Wales, which it's, it's a remote geographic area, incredibly beautiful area, but it is, you know, troubled with recruitment, possibly as a consequence of that. And I, 
I visited five practices while I was up there. Um, some of them managed practices, so practices that have been taken over by health boards. Some of them run by independent contractors. And um, it was so interesting. All of those practices, the, the real ethos was, was how they can do the very best they can for looking after their patients, which was uplifting. But there was a quite marked difference between the managed practices and, mm. and the independent practices. The managed practices talked a lot about how difficult it was to get decisions made by the health boards, you know, for, for big things like a practice had been trying to recruit a GP for some time, hadn't managed to, but they had the opportunity for a, a really brilliant nurse practitioner, but they couldn't get a decision from the health board to say, yes, we can take them on, or making changes to their premises, or, or how just simple things like how to run their diabetic clinics, they couldn't get an answer. Whereas the independent practices were sort of making a decision on Monday and by the following Monday it was in place and they were finding out whether it could work or not. So that shows the importance of ensuring that we try to retain as many of the independent practices and actually the know-how and knowledge of those people. Absolutely, yeah. That, that sort of enthusiasm, that, that commitment, that sense of responsibility for their, their practice that they've often been at for, for many years, you know, developing that continuity of care depth of relationship with patients which which improves the quality of care you know studies show that if you're registered with your GP for, for over a year you've got a, a 30% less chance of being admitted to hospital as an emergency or being being referred so it that continuity and that connection with the acute sector that most people associate healthcare with the acute setting actually it's vitally important because that will help the NHS thrive it's vitally important for quality of patient consultations and it saves money and it, it makes you less likely to make mistakes if you if you know your patients well. So all of those things help the NHS as a whole. Absolutely. Now, let's go back to that point we talked about in terms of this st- staggering number of individuals that potentially could be leaving um, because they're stressed, because there's a burnout. Now, if there's a golden thread for me looking at Wales, um, uh, the healthier Wales strategy, the, the workforce strategy, it's very clear that valuing the workforce their well-being is is front and center of the policy documents the reality of course might be slightly different and um, there was research published comparative research at the end of 2022 by the commonwealth fund uh, looking at many different countries including the uk um, and it talked about there being a primary care crisis in terms of wo- wellness wo- stress and burnout mm-hmm. and can we expand upon that because you obviously speak to gps and across wales regularly Just how extensive is that issue and what is being done to reverse that trend? It's it's absolutely horrendous, actually. You know, as as in my chair role, I talk to GPs and I'm a GP appraiser. So everything seems to come back to managing our workload. And what I see is that our primary care workforce is utterly exhausted um, and they're, they're sort of spending their life constantly apologising, apologising for long waits for patients to be seen in secondary care or long waits in the emergency department or long waits for us to see, you know, it's it's five weeks for a patient to see me routinely. That's too long. I don't want it to be that long. So that sort of constant sense of guilt and not really doing a good enough job, it, it's very demoralising for people who are getting into work at half seven in the morning and often not getting home till gone eight o'clock at night. So it's a hard job um, and, and we need to sort of do what we can to support support our teams to, to manage that. And is that a function of obviously the shortage shortages that we see? Uh, is it a broader cultural thing? Is there enough support uh, that's available 
uh, is funding important around all this too so we can properly resource the primary sector all of those things are important i think you know one of the things that i'm pushing is the importance of compassionate leadership so it starts within your own practice and if you've got a you know somebody you're having a hard day and somebody pops in with a cup of tea and a hand on your shoulder and you know a chocolate biscuit that you weren't expecting it's amazing what a difference that makes having the time to talk you know and that can be informally you know just a chat in the coffee room or or formally we set up regular friday morning before surgery meetings so that this has to happen however busy we are where you're you're sharing complex patients saying oh this was a bit tricky i'm not sure what do you think um that makes a huge difference to people um, and more formally, Welsh Government has set up something called the Canopy Service, which is a, a, a sort of um, mental health service for, for health professionals, um, where you've got wellbeing allies, which is a bit like peer support, but not within your own practice. Um, CBT is offered, all sorts of resources. And, and the, the, the feedback from that is very positive. People say, actually, it really does make a difference. Mm. So we, we're starting to get it right, but, but really what we need is more workers to make the job more manageable. So it's a bit of a vicious cycle in, yeah. in that sense. Um, obviously, more workers, we've looked at retention here in terms of wellness, more workers, of course, growing the workforce. Um, the Welsh Government published its National Workforce Implementation Plan uh, earlier this year and it was in a very celebratory mood I think investment over the previous eight years 23-24 uh, was the ninth consecutive year record numbers um, but I think as you've alluded to given the demography given the changes that when we look at training which is going to be it's very important to the Royal College we need to see potentially a revolution or certainly a, a, an iteration of how digital pathways are used to grow the workforce. What, what are you seeing that perhaps gives hope that we can train sufficient numbers in more innovative ways? Well, we've, we're really delighted that we've got lots more funding for more medical students and for more GP trainees. So that's a, that's a really positive thing. What we need to do is is look at the workforce that's available to us in Wales. So it's a very de- you know very deprived nation in in areas, and. We're sort of seeing that that the health service could be the new industry, but we need to empower people to recognise that. You know, lots of people don't know how many different roles there are in primary care. It's not just doctors and nurses. Um, and, And if we can reach those populations and then train them locally, we're much more likely to keep them and, and, you know, change their lives by giving them a good career, but also change our, our problem with the workforce. And the, the primary uh, care model for Wales has been uh, published in terms of a, it's definitely a, a multidisciplinary approach, as you say. So the idea of promoting the idea that there are actually a number of roles available. Are we seeing that from government and from within um, the profession itself? I think we really recognise that this is the way forward and, and this is the only way we're going to be able to manage the, the, the workforce problem that we've got. What's very important though is that whilst this is developing we work out the governance of it mm. so that this multidisciplinary team is well supported, it's supervised, everybody's protected and, and that nobody's sort of left on their own to be managing patients you know there's huge complexity in primary care without the support that they need from a supervising GP so we've got to get that part of it right. And getting that right also means um, broadening the lenses we've been talking about GPs of course we're here looking at the Royal College but um, 
what's clear from the implementation plan and it's out of scope uh, is growing the workforce for example in social care and I think it's impossible to understand how primary care can flourish without there being an adequate social care workforce. I think that's absolutely right. What we want, we, we've got an ageing population, older people are much more likely to have more more chronic conditions. We haven't got enough hospital beds for them to be cared for in hospital. Actually, they're much better cared for in their own homes in the community. We're glad to do that in primary care. But if I've had a patient who's discharged from hospital, she's well enough to be at home, but she can't safely get up from her chair and make herself a cup of tea or get to the loo, we've got to have carers in her home to be able to support her to to do those things and if we haven't got that she's going to get up she's going to fall over she's going to fracture her hip and bam she's back at the beginning of the cycle desperately needing a hospital bed so we've got to get the healthcare workers into into the community and then we've got to give them a job that that they can do we've got to pay them adequately and we've got to give them the time to do this very very important role so a truly integrated approach absolutely yeah Um, i wanted to broaden now the discussion on to the role of uh, gps you talked about because one of the key reasons and motivations for you uh, as chair is safeguarding Um, now you've talked um, publicly around the idea of safeguarding peer support groups uh, for general practice can you elaborate a little bit on what they are and how important they are because it's not just about patient care it's also about practitioner care it really is yeah I mean in primary care we've got a key role in in sort of protecting the most vulnerable adults and children in society because inevitably they're very likely to be coming into our surgeries and they're likely to know us and trust us and, and so they're, they're likely to share their problems. But we've got to be practising curiously enough to pick up on that when it happens. But the difficulty is safeguarding consultations are usually very tricky. Mm. Um, they're rarely 10-minute consultations. They're often, you know, you imagine a child who, who's got fabricated illness. Um, they are really complicated mm. and higher risk of litigation and so on. So they can be a sort of final straw for a GP who's, who's exhausted and demoralised. It, it can be the, the sort of thing that tips them over the edge. Now, we know that if you've got some support from your peers <coughs> to share that, that, that situation, you're less likely to... to be overwhelmed by it and the GMC says that safeguarding peer support is is important so what I've set up in in Monmouthshire with two clusters is um, a group of safeguarding leads Um, every practice has a safeguarding lead but any GP is welcome to come and we meet every three months we have a safeguarding presentation Um, I did county lines and, and drugs last time And then the second part of the meeting, which is probably the most valuable part, is where we bring along anonymised complex cases to discuss. Um, And the feedback is very positive. So I'm trying to scale that out across Wales so that every GP in Wales has got an opportunity to to join one of those groups. And is that being uh, met uh, with receptivity? Very much so. My my group in Monmouth has been going on for just over five years now and, and numbers are always increasing. And the health board has just recognised that it's it's important enough that the funding should be taken away from the cluster and centralised and saying that, that it should be scaled out. 
and Health Education in Improvement Wales are supporting me to do it nationally in a virtual way using their leadership portal. So I'm really excited about that starting in the autumn. And that's going to be obviously beneficial for practitioners, beneficial for patients. Um, but actually, how you've described it, um, it's an important lever in retention as well, isn't it? It really is, yeah. I, I mean, the, these are the kind of cases that are just overwhelming. But if you can support people with this... Um, that then we're much more likely to keep people in their roles because we've talked about training um, and it's great to have more more GPs being trained but if we're losing GPs at the other end there's there's no gain really and it's those those sort of GPs who've been in role for for you know 10 or 20 years that wealth of knowledge and wisdom that they've got the leadership that they can offer that they're really crucial to, to us being able to survive. No, absolutely. Well, good luck with that as you, as you roll it out uh, across Wales. Uh, as if there's not enough um, uh, on GP's responsibilities, you talked around, um, obviously, we, one end of the spectrum is the older population, um, but the GP role at the other end of uh, the population spectrum, uh, children at school, mm-hmm. I think you've been doing some work uh, clearly with the uh, uh, Claire Gerard, the president at the Royal College, uh, centering around this perennial issue of persistence absence from school by school children, which has it's well documented adverse effects on their life chances. And I think even before the pandemic, um, it was children from the most deprived backgrounds that tended to be persistently absent. Can you discuss about that a little more? Because it's uh, perhaps not covered very widely in how important GPs potentially could play a role in helping these children to flourish at school. Yeah, that's right. So this has, as you say, been a problem for a long time, but it's become significantly worse since the pandemic. And yes, the children who are eligible for free school meals or children with special educational needs are far more likely to be persistently absent than than children from, from wealthier backgrounds. And it has more of an impact on them. They're not safe when they're, they're not in schools. The, the, the whole county line's drugs situation they're more vulnerable to that so we know that it's going to be a national disaster if we don't turn this around and you know as a, as a trusted GP you've, you've got a, an important role talking to families about about the value of school what school can offer to, to families to try and mm. maintain children in schools um, so so that's what we're talking about doing really yeah. and is that going to be rolled out across Wales all GPs or is there a particular programme that's going to be uh, implemented? Well, we, we, we had a paper approved in, in RCGP Council last June um, where there's five principles talking about the importance of going to school, particularly the importance of going to school in the first week of term. We know if you miss, miss days in that very first week, your chance of being off persistently through the rest of term are hugely increased. So trying to give the parents the confidence to sort of just ease their children back in and make that effort really does make a difference. Uh, and that truly is part of a prevention strategy in terms of the widening gap in health inequalities. Absolutely right. Um, a, a few weeks ago, I had a patient who came to see me and he was talking about his future. He was trying to turn his life around, but he said, I just can't do anything without maths and English GCSE doc. And, you know, he really can't. And, and if he's got a criminal record or if he's involved with drugs, which missing school increases the risk of, then he can't do anything with that either. So we really must try and support these children as much as we can. No, absolutely. And uh, good luck with that sense of fascinating project to be involved in um 
I wanted to tie up the discussion to look a little bit into the future, a bit of a crystal ball. Um, the Welsh Centre for Public Policy published a document in uh, 2021 highlighting multiple challenges that needed to be addressed in health and social care, multiple uh, morbidities, inequalities we've talked about, as well, of course, as a sustainable workforce. But it highlighted that pivotal to all of this will be the importance of leadership. And as a leader yourself with so much experience, can you touch upon how important it will be for GPs and primary care health professionals to be leaders and what does that mean could you give them advice about how it is because you've got so many things that you and so much complexity sometimes it can be overwhelming it can i think you're absolutely right and leadership is going to be increasingly important for gps as we as we move into the multidisciplinary teams and gps will be sort of looking over you know supporting their whole teams we've got physiotherapists pharmacists nurse practitioners physicians associates all sorts of different members coming into the primary care team Um, and I've talked a lot about compassionate leadership and just the importance of that it helps with recruitment you know I I think if you're recognized as a compassionate leadership practice you're you're much more likely to get all members of the team in so saying yes to you know Yes, you can go to your child's sports day. Yes, you can get to that assembly. Yes, you can look after your mum and take her to her, her her sort of doctor's appointment. All of those things make a huge difference. Um, the the college in Wales, RCGP in Wales, mm. is is setting up its Leaders of the Future program again. That's starting next month. Um, and and the outcomes for for people who've been on that course over the last seven years are really positive. With sort of leadership positions in the college in the health board in in all sorts of areas so we know that to enable people to be good leaders we need to give them the support and the training and the the encouragement that that will enable them to get there and without uh, preempting the future it's also true that uh, because of the nature of wales it's 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 a and it's, and it's close-knit uh, interconnection you also have a, a unique opportunity i guess to influence government policy at least and speak with uh, the government and the minister in charge hugely so i mean i've been so fortunate in my role i i, I feel i've got a good relationship with our health minister Aline ed morgan her husband's a gp so that sort of helps her to understand a little bit of the pressures we're under or our chief medical officer i i can i can engage with them very easily where Perhaps in England it's a bit more difficult to get into Westminster. And because of our geography, we can set up projects, we can see how they work, if they're successful, then you've got a really good lever to say, well, look, this has worked really well in Wales, why don't we try it on a UK basis? And um, it's, it's an exciting place to work. Well, I think that that call for agility is a good point to stop, and hopefully uh, someone in Westminster might be listening. But uh, for now, thank you very much, uh, Rubina, for your time and uh, for your insights. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. If you've enjoyed this episode of Voices of Care, please like, follow or subscribe wherever you receive your podcasts. And if you want to find out how we are enabling the healthcare workforce of the future, please visit newcrosshealthcare.com forward slash Voices of Care. In the meantime, I'm Sahel Mirza. Thank you very much and see you on the next episode. Voices of Care is published by New Cross Healthcare. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.